Follow along as I read here, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. No way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflicts which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You may be seated. Father, we now ask that your spirit would help us, Lord, both me to speak, that he would accompany the words of the word of God and carry that through, but also for us as a congregation and individuals to hear the word of God. We truly need the spirit of God in that fashion, Lord, so we pray that he would help us this morning. Lord, teach us deep and great, wonderful things of yourself and how we can fall in line behind you and be followers of your son, Lord. Thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'd have to live in a very, very remote part of the world not to have seen some of the events that took place this week. Um, Our allies, in some ways, uh, France, uh, went through some very difficult waters, didn't they, this week? And many say that is far um, from the end of it. Uh, Europe is going to continue to see a barrage of terrorism that hits them, and the United States are to expect that too. I can't help but when I watch the news to think through things with a what we call a Christian worldview. What's the world doing, and how do we understand this? How do we look at the Word of God and understand what God is doing, what He's allowing to do, and how do we digest the information that comes to us? That's what we call a Christian worldview. We look to the scriptures to try to get a hold of that. Here's where my mind went this week as I thought about this. There certainly is a grave, grave difference between the followers of Muhammad and the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly there are many in the Muslim world that say that they disown that. But what a distinction when I read this passage and get ready to teach this this week and study through it to say, what a distinction between followers of what they call prophets. It was men this week that murdered many innocent people. They were obeying what was written down in their prophecies. I want to speak very carefully here. And they were accurately portrayed in the way they did things. If you read much of what is written, that's what their goals are. And as terrible as it was, and I, Gene and I talked about this with the boys, and we said, you know, how many families, how many aunts and uncles and, and husbands and wives and children are affected by that massacre? And not to even mention what happened in Africa. But think about the followers of Jesus for a minute. He says, to not kill for me, but to what? Die for me. 
what, what a contrast between those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says to, to live is gain, to, uh, to, to live as Christ, to die is gain. There is a constant repeated theme within the scriptures that we as believers are to die to self and follow Christ. Oh, just think of his example on the earth. He healed, I read, reading in my reading, I was in Matthew this week, and um, a portion in chapter eight, and the Bible says he healed all who came to him. Everyone, every person that came before him, in that text, Matthew chapter eight, the Bible says he healed all who came to him. Then you can follow his life. He feeds hungry people. He cast out demons. He, he, he is truly good to man, whether they believed him or not. And then uh, the crescendo is he hangs on the cross. And, and he told Pilate earlier, he said, I could call legions of angels if I needed them. Think about that. Man wouldn't even have a chance against one angel, let alone legions. And he, in the contrast to that statement there to, to Pilate, says on the cross, Father, what? Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Paul says in our passage today, this is the conduct that drives a believer. Forgiveness. Our sins are, are no longer against us. See, it drives, and it's such a, a stark contrast. The religions of the world have been so tainted by the work of Satan that they think if they can destroy other people, they gain eternal life. It, it's, Satan has absolutely, completely confused the message to the world. And you can study all the religions of the world, just not the world of the Muslim, but every religion has a balanced scale. That's it, we're in trouble. You and I are in a lot of trouble. But God slammed that scale down, piled it on with grace, and we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this text is about. This text is about people gripped with the Lord Jesus Christ and living for him. And so we call it a call to gospel-driven contact. And last week, we got into just the first words there. It says, only conduct or live in a manner, live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we, we looked at many passages that helped remind us that because Christ died for us, that we live for him. And just in way of review, we, we, we settled down on three things that would help us. One is Christ is enough. Remember that? Christ is enough. I don't have to go and do all this stuff or mount up all these things and, in order to gain something. Christ is enough. He's enough for everything. In fact, the Bible says that all the fullness of God dwelt in him and we are complete in Jesus Christ. We have what we need in Christ. Secondly, we said the Spirit of God will help you. Ask him. The very spirit of God himself resides in you at salvation and he'll help you accomplish living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll help you put to death sin in your life. 
And then third, and so many talked to me about this afterwards, we said, you don't, what? Belong here. You don't belong here. Heaven is our, our home. We belong in heaven, and so we are careful not to put down roots down here that uh, secure us to this earth, in a sense. We belong in heaven. Now notice, as we go on, and we'll get moving here, is we look at what Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. That you are standing firm. And so in your notes, we said the gospel gives us a firm footing to stand on. The gospel gives you a firm footing to stand on. If you've ever done any climbing or fishing out on slippery rocks or wherever and then you finally get back on firm ground or you're afraid of the ocean and your lovely husband took you for a whale watching uh, trip or something, you get back on that earth. I have flown in from other countries that were quite scary to be at at times and I remember getting back to the good old USA and going, oh boy, it's good to put my feet here. Thank you, Lord. I'm home. Look, Paul says, look, the gospel will help you stand. It'll help you stand. In fact, he says, so whether I come and see you or I remain absent, whether I ever show up or not is not how or why you're going to live for Jesus. The gospel drives that conduct. I thought this week of maybe having you raise your hand if you wanted to confess that you're a hypocrite. But that's a little embarrassing sometimes. Probably because all of us, in one way or another, have to go, <laughs> Right? And so I don't think any of us in this room who follow the Lord Jesus, believe him and to be our savior, honestly want to be a hypocrite. But when we examine the scriptures, we realize, wow, God is calling me to a life based on the gospel, and I don't always, I don't always live there. I may say some things and live another way at times, and, and we don't want that, right? We, we want to live consistent with this, and I think that's what Paul's doing. And so the gospel here is going to keep us from, from that failure, from that hypocritical life. And Paul knows it. He, he knows that if they're living for Jesus just because he's coming, what's going to happen when he leaves? It's like your kids when you walk in the room. They walk one way and, and they act a different way when you're gone. You don't want that as a parent, would you? Maybe for convenience sake. <laughs> but you don't want that for your children. And Paul knew that that wasn't what would be good for them. So the gospel will strengthen your stand. And, and it will not matter who stands in a pulpit or who you listen to or, or who comes and goes. The gospel will strengthen your stand. It will give you that strength. You will not have to change your behavior in order to impress people. <laughs> Through the years, I've called on a lot of people in their homes. And... Many times I knock on the door and man, things are scrambling. The pastor's outside and things are clanking. I'm going, just let me in. I don't care if there's dirt on the floor. I don't care. Just come to see you. See, live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. I wrote a little prayer in my notes that I often pray myself and thought I would give it to you. Just a simple prayer. I say this often, Jesus I will strive by the help of the Spirit to live for you because you died for me. Jesus, I will strive by the help of the Spirit to live for you because you died for me. 
There's some reasons why he said that. It's, Jesus, I want to strive. This is our word here, this standing and striving together. We see this in this verse. But I know I can't do it alone. Often, you don't hear it, but I pray it often as I move from that seat to the pulpit here. I say as I step up though, Spirit, help me. Spirit, help me. Speak through me. It's a daunting task to open your Bible and say, this is the word. And so I've learned to do that in my life. Help me, Spirit. Live for you. And, and here's the kicker. Here's the reason why. Here's how I can say it. Because you died for me. And it never gets old to hear that Jesus died for my sins. And it set me free. So the gospel will give you that ability to, to stand for the Lord. Think about this. If you and I pray this as married people, as single persons, as a parent, as a son or a daughter, as an employee or employee, as a neighbor, as a temporary earth dweller, as a teacher, a student, as a pastor, elder, teacher, as a church member, as a saved sinner, if you and I pray this, that God would strengthen us, that we would live as though the Bible is true, that we are set free from our sin and death, sin and death. Oh, what could happen with a group like this? See, that's gospel living. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. Just look across the page, possibly there, or turn one. Paul says this. He's trying to wrap things up. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see. So he wants to be there in Philippi with him, but he's enchained, right? He's in Rome. My joy and my crown, he calls them. He, he, and, and that's so true. You see people get saved, and you see people get Grow in the Lord and they become such a joy to you. And he sees us. He says though to him, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Lean into the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the Corinthians church, he says, be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Stand firm in the faith. Galatians chapter 1 verse 5, he said, it was for the freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. You know the yoke of slavery that he's talking about here? He's talking to the legalism. Be free in Christ. Let the gospel mandate and lead you and drive your conduct. Don't stick your hands back into the slavery of of legalism, well, I have to do this and I can't do that and I better do that or, hmm, be free because Christ has set you free. Look with me at Ephesians chapter three. Just turn back. Actually, chapter six, excuse me. Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. I love this term, stand firm, firm. You can chase it down through Scripture. simply what I did. And it reminded me that it was said in this again to the church in Ephesus. And again, a church that Paul is writing to while in chains in Rome. So he understands um, this picture that he's going to develop here. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. Now this one, look at it, against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In verse 12, he starts to give us a little bigger picture of what this looks like for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, 
against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Very strong language that there is a massive spiritual battle going. And if you laugh or you think Satan is not strong in his forces, you have not read the Bible correctly. He is a powerful, angelic being that hates the plan of God. The Bible says for you to stand firm against his schemes. And you know this text, verse 13, he tells you how to do that. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Our problem is we take up the part of the armor some days. We venture out into war with, you know, one glove and a boot. And we end up getting beat up. But he says, take the full armor of God so that, here's our, the henna clause, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done so, look at this, stand firm. You've done everything. You've put on the armor. You've stood firm. And then he gives you the list. Of course, you know this. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. This is a belt. This is that satchel that went around and carried their swords on it and girded their loins so they could fight. And, and it's truth. The word is strong. It is, it is the, the person. It's a, it represents the character of God. When we say, I believe in him, all of who he is, his character, his person. I believe in truth based on the scriptures. Gird yourself. Then he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We have to be very careful with this because this isn't our righteousness that we're putting on. This is the righteousness of Christ given to us. And that righteousness affects our righteous behavior. Put that on and think about that. If Boy, if you don't protect the vital organs, you're in trouble. You take a fiery arrow to the, to the section that protects your cavity of your heart, your lungs, you're in for it. He says, shod your feet. Great old horseshoeing term, shod your feet. Cowboyed for a lot of years. You lose a shoe out in the middle of nowhere and we carry these boots that we put on them to get back because a stone bruise would hit them and you'd come limping in with a horse and he'd be down for a while before you could get back out on him. And so we protect their feet. The same is true with us. And in war, their goal was to take out the feet of soldiers by, with nails and shards in different ways. And, and here the Bible says that we are to shot our feet with a gospel of peace. I, I love this. The word gospel, ulagelion, good news of peace. Brothers and sisters, you and I have to remind ourselves daily, we are not at war with God. And some of you need to stop acting like you are. Stop fighting him. Let him rule. He loves you. He's brought peace to your life. Jod your feet with this precious truth that we are at peace with God. In addition, verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Man, this is very graphic, isn't it? Phew. It said that they would dip their arrows in tar, light them on fire, and they would shoot them so when they hit, it splattered and burned people and burned buildings and everything else. And Paul was sitting there tied to these soldiers. I mean, you can imagine him writing this. <laughs> Tell me about that shield a little bit. Well, this leather that we put on the outside of our shields, we lay them in water and, and make the leather wet. And so when the fiery swords that are dipped, uh, arrows dipped in pitch hit them, they splatter and the wet leather puts them out. Oh, really? Take up the shield of faith. 
and extinguish the arrows that come. Isn't that beautiful? Satan, you know him. Tomorrow morning, he's going to be sitting outside your office firing stuff in there. It's going to come through a coworker. It'll come through something, but he loves to just drop those arrows in. And you're going to be there because you were with the gospel and you, you read your Bible and you believe the word of God and, and your faith is in Jesus. And his arrows are extinguished. Notice further, he says, take the helmet of salvation. Pretty obvious, you better protect the coconut. You don't go very far if that gets nailed. The helmet the helmet of salvation, the truth that God has set me free, that he has saved me from my sins, that Jesus was enough, I don't add to it. Oh, it's a great helmet. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We pick up this thing. And it's not only a weapon for defense to block, but it is also a weapon of offense. We use it. We finish it all off with prayer. See, the gospel is what causes you to stand firm in, in the gospel. Notice back in our text, our second point is the gospel is the only source of our unity. I love this little phrase here. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Notice it's a small s in your text, in spirit there. So he's not saying stand in the Holy Spirit, which is certainly there's truth to that. He could have said that. But he's, he's saying something different. He's saying that we stand in one spirit, one reasoning, one way. Together we are, have the same spirit of truth within us. The same desire to move the same direction. I think this is a tremendous point. What ruins a church? What ruins armies? You've got an army and half of them leave. They flee and they run away. Or, or they don't want to fight together, or they don't have the same drive to, 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 to protect. Oh, no, stand in one spirit together. You've seen teams. I, I certainly have been in the sports world most of my life. And I've seen teams go through struggles early on in the season. They just don't have that chemistry, they call it. But then all of a sudden, they seem to start to get the vision of where they're going. There's a championship to be won. And all of a sudden, they start to work together and they have the same spirit, the same goal to, to accomplish it. And these teams go on to win championships. You've seen this happen. This is what he's saying. Look, church in Philippi, be of one spirit, be of one mind, think together. And you go, well, how do you do that? We're all so diverse. Look at us. Color, race, ethnic, um, economics, where we live. We're so different. What does that? One central truth unites us. The gospel. Oh, I love that truth. And we can accomplish what God has asked us to do when we unite in one spirit. Look at Ephesians again, just back one couple pages, chapter three. I just want you to mark this verse because Paul was about unity in every letter that he wrote, he dealt with unity. Verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more beyond all that we ask and think according to the power that works within us. Oh, that's truth and the spirit of God, right? 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever 
and ever. Amen. That's a great promise that our children and our children's children and the children of the children's children can walk with the Lord in one accord. And look at the verse four, bad chapter break here. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There's the gospel. So you and I will have differences every once in a while. But the gospel will bring us together. The gospel stops the heartache and the brokenness, fixes marriages, fixes parenting, fixes churches. The gospel brings us together. Notice verse two, it's done with humility and gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance for one another, prefer one another in love. That's what the gospel does. And then look what the result is, being diligent to preserve the unity of the biggest spirit, right, of the bond of peace. We, pres- we preserve what the spirit of God is doing here. Third, back in our text in Philippians chapter one, the gospel is the fuel for our striving together. The gospel is our fuel for the striving together for the faith. Notice it says, only conduct yourself, verse 27, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or or go or, or see you or remain, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, now look at this little phrase, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What a little phrase right there. I I really want to paint that somewhere. (laughs) Where we all see it all the time. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's a fascinating little phrase um, here. Uh, it It is used in everything from military to athletics. It is this battling to, to accomplish together what we couldn't do without each other. Together, um, agreed upon, we will move forward with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knew this was the answer for the church. I greatly desire to strive together with the gospel in the church. That's exactly what Ted and I are going to do this week as we go down to Mexico. We're going to go down there and stand with those brothers who are in a very difficult third world, third world world down there. And we're going to say, we stand with you and we want to strive together with the gospel with you. And we're here. And, and they've kind of called here lately and said, hey, we're not sure about your coming. It's getting dangerous down here. Well, we're coming. We're coming because we think it's important that we come and strive together with you in the gospel. And the Lord will protect us. These are great. So we want to strive together in a church. We want to strive together in missions. We want to strive together in worship. One of the beautiful things that's happened in this church is the worship. I, you got to sit up here sometime. Some of you rear row reformed, back row Baptist people back there, you need to come back up here. Um, it's amazing up here. Because you hear all these voices kind of come behind you. And we're striving together to be a, a group of people who sing, who worship together. We strive in our preaching. We, we try to get clearer and work harder in the text as men who hold down the pulpit and, and men who teach in our home groups and Sunday school teachers. We strive together. Are you striving in your family? You heads of your homes, you men. Are you striving? Too many homes, men don't strive. Mom strives, but men don't strive. God's calling you men. Act like men. Strive for the gospel. Be the leader. Get, get your family to church. Talk about it sun, Saturday night. Hey, we're going to church. Kids, you have your clothes ready. Where's your Bible? 
hey, we're going together, strive with the church, let's go, let's move together, men lead. Paul uses another word that's very similar, look at Colossians chapter one, just the end of chapter one, verse 28 and 29. Mark Christopher from South Africa will be here um, at the end, towards the end of our missions month. And he, this is his verse, I've heard him teach this. This is stamped all over his ministry. The verse says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man, verse 28, and with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete. Teleos is the word there. Not plerao, that's in verse 10 of chapter 2. That's what God does. We're complete in Christ. But here is teleos is the different word, meaning that Paul's goal is to grab those people that are around him, that he has an opportunity to spend in life and ministry and church with to help bring them more into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, grow in that progressive sanctifying work. Now look at verse 29. Here's the word I'm after. For this reason I also labor, there's one word, And here he uses another word different than it's in our text, but a very strong word, striving according to the power which mightily works within me. Agonazo. Agonize. And that's what your leaders do. They agonize over you in a sense, a good sense. They agonize over the church to help the church strive together for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you flip back to our text, stop in chapter 4, verse 3. Actually, verse 2 and 3. The Philippi church was a great church, but it still had issues. And there was a wrestling going on in this church, particularly between two ladies. I urge you, verse 2, Eludia um, and Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. There's, there's a problem there, right? There's something happened between these two gals. These gals will see us served with Paul, and they're, they're good gals. They just... They got wayward a little bit. And so he he tells the church, indeed, true companions, and I ask you, plural, also, to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he said, look, the problem to deal with these two that are struggling is the gospel. Care for them. Love on them. Finally, back to our text. Look at verse 28. It says, we're to strive together for the, for, for the faith of the gospel. In the 27, 28, he says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. This is a little fascinating verse, and I just want to comment it briefly, but the Bible says that when we strive together for the gospel, it gives two signs. One, those who hate the gospel, those who are against Christ's church, those who oppose the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is part of their destruction. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, where you share the gospel with somebody and they get madder and madder and madder. It, it, it drives them crazy. They don't like this. And what's really interesting, as you look at the world and what's going on, we're very careful to deal with faiths that bring harm to people as a nation, right? We seem to be very careful because, you, know, you know, what are we going to do here? While in the same Middle East region, Christians are being slaughtered. And, and they hate it. They, they hate the teaching of Christ. 
And Paul says, when we strive together, it's going to be a destructive sign to some. Some are going to say, man, we got to get rid of those people. They're telling us who we can marry and who we can't marry. <laughs> right? I mean, that just blows the mind of the world that the church says, hey, hey, we're not telling you. We're just saying this is what the Bible says. This is what we're going to hear to. We're going to hold to this as a church because it brings God the most glory. Oh, it just irks the world right now. And they're coming. Trust me. They're coming. But look at the other side. When we strive together, it's, it brings salvation as well. And some of those who hate the gospel will come like Paul, who hated the gospel, he hated the movement of Jesus Christ, and God will save people like that. And so we keep preaching the gospel, we keep striving together in unity to preach the gospel. Now, we defend the hope that is within us, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, with gentleness and reverence. Very important, isn't it? We're not there slamming people against a locker saying, you know, come to Jesus or die, you know. But we speak the gospel with gentleness and reverence. Why? Why? Because that's how God dealt with us. He was extremely gentle with you. We read how he spoke of his nation. He gathers the lambs in, in his arms. That's what he did when you came to know Jesus Christ. Think about that just for a moment. He lovingly gathered you. You held off. You thought you were pretty good, that you really didn't need Jesus. You thought that you had things figured out. And here comes our loving Lord gently says, no, you're mine. You're coming with me. You need me. You need me. And I'm going to carry you. Reverence is simply because we have a gift that we didn't deserve. You don't deserve to be saved. You and I deserve the wrath of God. But God didn't give it to us, did he? And so we preach the gospel with reverence. We plead with people, come to know Jesus. Oh, come see his love. Come see that he can forgive all your sins. You don't have to be angry and mad anymore. Come to him and know the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, our last thought. Number four. The gift of the gospel prepares us to suffer for Christ's glory. The gift of the gospel prepares us to suffer for Christ's glory. Look at verse 29 and 30. For to you, that's a plural you, we would say in the South, for you, you all. So he's speaking to all of us here. It has been granted for Christ's sake so pick up your prepositions here. Granite is your main verb. It's a passive verb, meaning something that's done to us. For Christ's sake is to denote the position of what was granted to bring glory to God. Now he says two things here. Not only to believe in him, that's a very important first thought there, right? He, he granted us for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ's glory, to believe. He granted you salvation. Passive. Passive means, it's not active, means it was something done to us. But not only, not only does he grant us to believe, look at this, but he also to suffer for his sake, for his glory. You go, well, I really like the first half of that. <laughs> he calls us to suffer. And again, it's the gospel that drives our ability, whether we suffer for his glory, or we just suffer 
and try to get through it. I don't know about you men, but I'm a horrible sick person. When I'm sick, I'm dying. It's all over. Start the funeral. Get the song, Darren, that I want saying on my sermon. It's over. You ladies are all laughing, and all of us men have our heads down. I don't know what that is, but it's a problem within us. Some well things I don't suffer very well out. You know, when you go, Lord, how, did I magnify you at all with the flu? <laughs> you, you, the Bible says here, look at this. Is, am I missing this? I'm trying to give it right from the original language. For you all, it has been granted, past tense, passive, something that God did for Christ's sake, that's his glory, that's his person, not only, not just to believe, which is the most beautiful thing that we can believe now, in him, there's the prepositional phrase, our positioning in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. He's asked you and I to suffer. And that's hard. That's hard, especially here. Ted and I are going to get a dose of reality on Thursday. We're going to walk down there. We're going to go across the border. We'll get picked up. We'll go into this place called the Eagle's Nest. Very, very third world. Very difficult. And, it'll, and we'll find these brothers, and they'll embrace us when we walk into their church. The, they've never met Ted, um, person. They've talked on the phone. But they'll embrace Ted as though they've known him his entire life. I know these men. I've been there. And they're suffering. Fernando, um, a little over a year ago, was kidnapped. He was going to a computer store to drop off a computer, came out, they put a bag on his head, drove him away, took him away for three days, put a gun to his head, we're going to kill him for three days. By the grace of God, they figured out he was the wrong guy. They drove back to his neighborhood, opened the door, kicked him out, and drove off. Ever since, he's had death threats, phone calls. He suffers. But if you say, Fernando, are you going to leave this? Are you going to, what are you going to do, Fernando? He knows he's called there, and he's, he's training men. And he's a joy to be with. And, and there's several guys down there that they're just lit for the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about you and I? Let, let me show you some verses that may help us just a little bit here in closing. 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2. Because suffering's hard. I really like the first part of that verse. He's granted me to believe. Man, am I thankful for that. But how do we suffer? He's turned his attention to the suffering of the church. They've been scattered. If you read the first couple of verses of the, of the letter, they're scattered all over. There's persecution starting to happen. The church is scattered. So he's preparing the church, Peter is writing, to suffer for the glory of God. Verse 21, he says... For you have been called for this purpose. That context has been flowing down about suffering unjustly, verse 19. You've been called for this purpose. He uses the word, same word that we use for the calling of salvation. He uses you called for this purpose. And then he says this, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. It goes back to my introduction. You follow who you bend your knee to. The face of the world bend their knee to certain people and they follow them. 
And the result of some of their behavior is what we saw this week. We bend the knee to Jesus Christ and we follow him because he left us an example of how to suffer. And then the Bible doesn't leave us without the answer here, verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Whew. I I haven't figured that one out all the way yet. (laughs) How about you? When you're accused unjustly, how do you respond? The Bible says here that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Isaiah 53 paints a picture of a lamb suffering, slain unjustly. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But here's the answer, look at this. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Here he is in full humanity, fully God, but full humanity, feeling everything that he's going through, listening to the mocking. Oh, you've saved others, save yourself. Can you imagine the power that he had? And yet restrained himself because he knew you and I in 2015 needed a savior. He restrained himself and said, God, I'm going to trust you. Not my will be done, but yours. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as he hung on that cross. See, he's telling us that we are to follow this example. This hits home a little bit. Let me put some practical stuff to this. Some of you have some difficulties going on in your life. You have difficulties, whether it's marriage or, or work-related or neighbor-related or whatever it is, and there's some suffering going on. I would ask that you would say, God, you not only granted me salvation, but you granted me a chance to suffer. Would you help me suffer in a godly way? May I not be one who reviles when reviled, May I not utter threats when threatened, but Lord, help me to trust you. Great joy comes from that. Look around down at chapter 4, verse 12 here, just for a little more encouragement, and then we'll close this out. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for the testing, for your testing. Okay, so that gives a little more perspective as though some strange thing were happening to you. But notice this, verse 13, I like this. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ. See that word degree? I'm not sure what it says in some of the other translations. The idea is that whatever God chooses to allow for you to have. You know, there's some in our midst that are really suffering. We have family members, our church family, that are going through difficult cancer treatments. Loss of loved ones recently. Wayward children that their hearts are broken over. To whatever degree that God has asked of you, sharing his sufferings. And then he, he doesn't say just muddle in them. Look what he says. Keep on rejoicing. That's hard, and you'll have to pray. You'll have to say, Lord, I want to rejoice through this suffering trial that you've asked me to do. Help me, Lord. And I promise you, just as Paul is telling the Philippi church here in Philippians, that it is the gospel that will help you suffer through that. Verse 30, he just ends this way, and so will I. 
the people in the world, the other believers in the world are suffering just like you. Isn't it comforting when you go through somebody, something and someone comes up and you said, hey, I've been there. Can I pray with you? Isn't that beautiful? And that's what Paul's saying. Remember, you're not alone. Because I think sometimes in our suffering, we go, oh, nobody understands. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Paul says it's not true. There's those who are experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here. It's being shared. And, and, and I just end with this thought. You remember when Paul was knocked off his horse or his donkey or whatever he was riding and he was brought to Ananias and Ananias said, do you know who this is, Jesus? Do you know who this is? This is the persecutor of the church. And you remember, God told Ananias there and he said, look, I know who he is. In fact, I've called him to suffer for my glory. In a way, I think Paul's saying the same thing back to us. I think he's realized what God has called him. And he's saying, hey, I know what it is to be called for suffering. And so he's asking us to step up and suffer for the gospel. Last thought. I don't know that you're ever going to have a gun to your head. But what would you do if you did? Take it down a notch. Is Christ worthy to suffer through hardship in Hollister? Where, where we have freedoms. Is he worthy to suffer for in, in reforming marriage in your life? Raising children? Standing for Jesus in the job place? Is he worth that? Tell him he is, and he'll give you strength. Father, we thank you for a chance to study Philippians. This is an amazing letter, Lord, inspired by you, Lord, written through the Apostle Paul. And we realize the gospel, it helps us strive, it helps us stand, and it helps us suffer together, Lord. So I pray this morning, Lord, that as into different individuals in here who have suffered already, Lord, and you're giving them a time of peace and, and they're healing and they're joyous. We, we thank you for that. But Lord, there's others that are entering into suffering. And we pray that we would strengthen them and we pray that the gospel would be their strength, that they would remind themselves each and every day that Jesus died, he came, and he suffered for my sins so that I can live for him. In whatever, whatever degree of suffering he's asked. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, be with us as we depart from here, Lord, as we sing one more song to you and and go our way, Lord. May we each see ourselves as a, a part of the whole for striving together for the gospel. A part of the whole for striving together for the gospel. We praise you for this in Jesus' name.